welcome to episode 2 of The Pathmakers, an interview series by The Black Sheep featuring people that make and shape a country. In today's very exciting episode on policy, I'm joined by Hussain Nadeem, Executive Director, Islamabad Policy Research Institute, IPRI, and founder of the G5 Internet Observatory. Hussain and I talk about policy making in Pakistan, his work at IPRI, a government-affiliated think tank in Pakistan that he has turned around as one of the most prominent think tanks in the world. We also discuss Pakistan's first national security policy, the fallacy of a South Asia expert, radicalization and fake news. Hussain Nadeem graduated in international relations from George Washington University. He was a Commonwealth scholar at University of Cambridge, after which he pursued his PhD from the University of Sydney. He has worked with institutes like the US Institute of Peace and the Wilson Center in America and in the Planning Commission in Pakistan. He was also featured in the Forbes 30 under 30 list in 2016. Am I right about uh, all of these qualifications that I listed? Yeah, now that you say it, yes. <laughs> it's, been, it's been some time, but yeah, you know, you're accurate. So what I'm curious to know, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, is after this stellar mix of academics and work, why IPRI? I'm curious to know why Hussein Nadeem didn't consider joining politics or become an activist or continue as an academician. What prompted you to take on the reformation for a public sector government affiliated think tank like IPRI and wanting to turn it around? Thank you. That's a very interesting question, the way you articulated that. The, uh, you see, the generation which I come from in Pakistan, uh, we are a very unique generation of people. I was born in 87 and it was just about the time when Afghanistan war was ending, the Cold War was ending and this new era of the 90s uh, was starting off the end of the Cold War and all of that. But while it was the end of the Cold War for the rest of the world and uh, the US and the European countries that were celebrating the, the demise of the Soviet Union, for countries like Pakistan, Afghanistan and other places, it was the birth of a new era where there was a lot of leftover, spillover effects of the Afghan War. The Americans left Afghanistan uh, in a complete chaos, just like they did in 2021. Back then, it was exactly the same way. There was a spillover. In fact, Pakistan kept asking that you need to focus on the development. You need to focus on the peace because there are, there are problems in Afghanistan. There was a civil war emerging and the Americans basically said that we're done with this region. We don't care. You handle it. It was not only that they left Pakistan to handle the problems. They also sanctioned Pakistan. So we moved from the friendliest of the countries for the US to the most sanctioned countries which is the result, what we saw, the rise of Taliban and all. And I think a lot of my friends in India don't understand this fact that why Pakistan continues to support Taliban or why it continues to tolerate it is because the spillover effect on Pakistan is real. The, the, the continuing civil war in Afghanistan doesn't really help Pakistan. Uh, the other countries in the region and far away, are, I cannot understand the fact that once the civil war break out, Pakistan was hosting over 4 million refugees at the time when Pakistan's economy was crumbling and at a time when Pakistan's uh, economy was basically under sanctions. So for Pakistan, basically any group that could bring peace in Afghanistan, whether it was A, B or C, uh, the idea was to actually empower people in Afghanistan to bring about stability, which is why we saw what happened. So I was born in the, I was raised in the 90s when we saw this, this whole radicalization or this whole Afghanistan chaos having a spillover in Pakistan. And then 2001 happened, 9-11, and our country was then again part of another war, which costed us a lot, 60,000 lives, 
over a 180 billion dollars in economic losses but it was a lot of people tend to continue focusing on this fact that it was economic loss it was the um, it was the loss on the um, on the side of the human lives but nobody really talks about the the impact it had on the mental health of an entire generation that saw war real life i can assure you one thing there is not a single pakistani who has not been directly affected by by the war after 911 be it the terrorist attacks people have lost their lives including my own self uh be it the schools being shut down be it the extremism the radicalization the secret wars the covid war so so we've seen too much so some of us who were fortunate enough to get the education uh, the right education across globally and learn the first question really was and the first thing that we asked why did you come back to pakistan because everybody wants to run away uh the the real thing that i think the answer to that was that we are a very passionate generation we've seen too much and if you ask 10 young pakistanis around 25 to 35 years then fafaz and asked them what do they want to do all of them want to do the same thing help pakistan get better because we have seen the environment so for me the question was that i didn't want to live in the comfort of the west um uh, i wanted to come back to pakistan i do wanted to serve the country in any capacity for me so that was one point moving back to pakistan the second thing was that why pre why the government corporate sector is much more lucrative and all of that i also think that if i was god willingly somehow afforded a good education a good opportunity and all it was i owed it to the people i owed it to my country to actually be there to do something even a tiniest of the change in the setup would have really made an impact even a new idea or anything so that was something very important to me and i believe that you mentioned about why didn't i choose activism or academia i did uh, start off in academia while i was working parallel in politics and government uh, it was really about the the intensity of the impact i thought that academic exercise in pakistan was good yet it was very much disconnected from the reality of the policy reality of the people on ground there was a big disconnect so the impact level in the classroom was fine 100 or 200 students a year uh you could guide them in the right direction and then you creating a capacity but one small project at the government level had an impact which was millions of people uh, at the planning commission i did a lot of projects for the youth development a lot of projects for peace and development and i saw the impact that you can have inside of the system so in a way i consider myself as an activist within the system because i do believe that you can bring about drastic level of changes by working in the system i don't personally believe that uh, activism outside of the system uh, has that level of impact in some cases it does but in my cases having the background international relations security policy public policy i do think that i was much better able to serve that by being inside the system and trying to change bring change from inside and i think that has been now a journey of 10 years and i worked at the planning commission in the development side i worked over here at tipri which comes under the prime minister's office national security division uh, so i worked on the national security side on afghanistan and other places and i do think that just by being a voice in the system is itself very very uh, impactful and i uh, i look forward to working in the system um so hasan how do you maintain a sort of non partisanship even though it comes under the national security division um how do you establish that non partisanship and how do you contribute to the dialogue that's happening in the government how do you influence the policy making agenda like i'm genuinely curious to know even as a policy maker and a uh, advocacy professional from india i really like to know the process is there a model that ipri has perfected now uh, how do you bring in important issues 
to to the table and you know push the government to work on them thanks uh, so when i was planning to undertake reforms of this organization uh, ifri islamabad policy research institute the idea was how do we basically pick up a traditional think tank which publishes very traditional type of research 50 60 pages of papers sent into the government and expecting people to read the truth is that in the world of digital where there is so much influx of information nobody really has time to read especially people like prime minister the national security advisers and the ministers they really don't have time so my question really was that how do we sell our ideas because as a think tank our core goal is ideas and which is one of the reasons why i believe that being at the think tank is probably much better than being at an academia being an activist or being a full time bureaucrat in the government because with by being in a government think tank i have one leg inside of the system and yet the other leg is outside of the system to for me to be able to provide input which is not really based on government's narratives but i could challenge the government's narrative so it allowed me that leverage and that uh, that that sort of distance from the government to be able to then have my own thinking process so the question that you've asked is essentially how do you contribute so for me the question was how do we make the research useful how do we reform the research so instead of like publishing 50 page paper what we did was we converted those 50 pages papers into an infograph form which could be read very easily which was policy digestible the other thing we did was policy briefs so we instead of like you could have a 50 pages or 100 page report or whatever but it had to be basically packaged in a two page or three page policy briefs with actionable matrix that you have to do this this and this so it started off with the diagnosis of the problem giving you the data and then ending up with basic solutions to the issues and i think that went really well and that allowed us to become an integral part of the system in just one year because nobody else was doing it so we made the data we made the research more digestible so one thing was that the second thing we also did was the digitalization and i'll tell you what uh, framework we used you asked about what model we had i adopted a theory of change which was basically three d's the datafication digitalization and disruption under the disruption what we did was that we brought in a lot of young people 65% of pakistan is under the age of 30 our average me the median age in pakistan is 22 in india it's 28 in pakistan is 22 which basically means that we have 140 million pakistanis 14 crore is larger than the population of europe so the problem was that despite the fact that we have such a youth population they didn't have any representation in the government they didn't have any voice the the government is still being run and functioned just like in india by post retired officials from the eras of the dinosaurs so their mindset their ideas are still based around petty politics issues of concerns that are not really important in the globalized world now so so for me the important part was how do i bring in the younger lot so under the disruption my entire team at ipri is under the age of 30 so we brought in young people we brought in the minorities we brought in a lot of women uh, our gender balance is actually in favor of the women now inside of my office so so that allowed us to adapt to technology very fast because the younger generation was much but much, much more adaptable to technology and the digital digitalization so that was one thing the other thing was digitalization we set up the digital footprint and infrastructure of the ipri and a lot of people after 6 months thought that ipri was just established in 2020 whereas it's been established since 1999 but because of the digital footprint it developed a lot of traction so from uh, from having around about 1000 1500 views a month 
on our products. Ipri got down to 4 million, 5 million views a month. And right now, as we speak, Ipri has the largest digital footprint in entire South Asia. In terms of the digital footprint, we are bigger than ORF, we are bigger than ITSA. So that's something that allowed us to undertake reforms and become more relevant within the system. So sometimes the bosses don't listen to you when you send them products manually through paper. But once they see on Twitter the same product, they they tend to like it. So, so we were approaching the policy community and we were influencing the policy community, not just by sending them mail, courier infographs or courier policy inputs. We were pushing them outside and the third party intervention through Twitter, Facebook, where all these ministers and policymakers are present, they were picking up the content from there. So IPRI became more relevant. And the last thing was the data vacation. One thing that I do, my role is uh, I do data for national security. So the idea was that instead of just developing policies based on hearsay or intuition that a lot of people in the country think that, oh, we know about the poverty in this part of the region. We know about the security. We, I started asking the important questions. Okay, sure, you know, but what is the evidence? So what we did was that we started doing data for all the policy that we are doing on the national security side. And that was one of the most important projects that I've done. Uh, and that worked really, really well. I, in fact, find all of this thoroughly fascinating, but uh, I'm glad you mentioned the national security policy because it's been in the news for now and I think it's releasing on Friday, right? Very soon it will be out. So I wanted to ask you your experience of working on this policy as well, because um, I think it's it's the first national security policy which offers a very comprehensive overview of what tra traditional and non-traditional security challenges. So if you could tell us a little more about that. Uh, what are the five key takeaways um, for you from this policy and why is it important? Uh, it will be released on, uh, on Friday. So a lot of the details will come out then. Until then, the, there was in Pakistan for the last 70 years, Pakistan has been under a very tight security situation. Uh, we've had, uh, since 1947, we've had border issues both on the East and the West. Uh, with India on the Kashmir um, and on the Duran line with Afghanistan. So, so the state really was not able to, I mean, nation, a nation or a country by definition has its borders secured. So that's the first definition. In Pakistan since 1947, there were border disputes on both sides. So, so the, the nation, the way it emerged was basically under a sort of anxiety that we are insecure. And the messaging from both the Afghanistan and India side was that this nation is not going to last for too long. So the, that that narrative kind of made Pakistan undertake a sort of uh, activities and policies out of out of an anxiety or out of insecurity. So that's the framework of how things evolved. And for the 70 years, while that was the case, we really didn't have any national security policy in set in stone. But the process really started in 2014, where the different arms of the states came together and they wanted to come up with a unified national security policy on the paper, which was integrated, which was comprehensive, which covered the new dimensions of national security, including the human security, the climate security, and the gender security, and all of that. So, so that was basically the need for that. So, the, a lot of core departments of national security uh, had a lot of hurdles. Uh, came up with a national security vision and a policy, which which is going to be launched in uh, two thousand and uh, sorry, which is going to be launched in uh, next few days. Uh, and the core of that is basically it's we're labeling it as a people centric uh, uh, national security policy, where we are putting humans first, people first. The idea of that is basically moving from the state level national security to the human security angle of things. 
part of the reason why we do we're doing that is because in the the globalized world where we're living the the power the devolution has actually occurred in a way where uh, it's about the people now it's more about not about the state the nations uh, the, the institutions but we want to prioritize people for whom the state and the institutions are supposed to serve so otherwise the the, the problem with post colonial states like pakistan and india and elsewhere uh, is that that states become too big and the states become less about the welfare of the people and the states continue to protect themselves the institutions are so large and oversized institutions that continue to just uh, survive because they need to survive on their own so the, the element of the people and why they the people are important goes out uh, that's one of the problems with the post colonial states so we want to change that in many ways by putting the people first as a policy and then developing a national security policy around that so the climate security policy is really about how we can help people mitigate the crisis of the climate be it the farmers uh, be it people living in the northern regions uh, be it people what happened in mari recently so so it's the, it's the people first so the, the climate security is very important the food security is very important which is linked directly to the climate security um, then there is gender security element to it as well where uh, we do think that gender is not just a security issue but it's an economic issue as well where you can bring in the gender bridge in the gender gap to have the 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 economic dividends out of it and most importantly the geo, the tilt towards geo economics uh, pakistan for a very long time has been speaking the language of geopolitics and geosecurity etc etc but really it's about economy uh, there is nothing uh, underneath all the security layers it's really the economy that we're speaking so i think the new security policy you will see is is a lot more about how pakistan is regionally interconnected the regional connectivity the national security issues how we're going to continue to have more uh, integrated policies across these different dimensions including the maritime security uh, what do you think other top challenges with policy making in pakistan today and how does ipri aim to resolve those going forward all right thanks um the, the there is no one policy making in pakistan uh, different institutions have different mechanisms of policy the financial the economic economic policies have very different sets of challenges the the security side where i work has very different set set of challenges the development side has a different set of challenges but but the overarching theme i personally think is essentially uh, one the the policy making the the process of policy making i feel is one very much archaic uh it's done exactly in the same way that the british were doing policy making in this country uh, from a very very disconnected way from the people the public so without understanding the changing nature of the society the changing nature and the needs of the people so so there's a big disconnect in the policy in that side that way the policy making is benefiting a very few super elite in the country not the people at large so that is one big challenge where the disconnect between the people the, the 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 policy makers and the consumers of the policies there so one the second part is the the policy without policy making without any evidence or data uh, the last time any serious surveys were done in this part of the region including india and pakistan was the imperial gazettes done in 1858 till 1900 in india and at this entire region which basically went the the british bureaucrats um, under the east india company they went around the country 
mapping out every single ethnicity, religion, their practices, their economy, their strengths, their weaknesses, and then decide that, okay, fine. The people in the Northern Punjab region, they are the martial races. So we're going to put them in the military. Uh, the people in this Gujarat region are very good with the numbers. So let's put them in the finance side of things. The people on these areas are much better in terms of uh, the agriculture. So let's give them the land. So it, it the, the whole, this region, what we call India, Pakistan, the South, South Asia subcontinent, is essentially in, it's an image of what the British wanted in the region. So it was not really what the people wanted. It was out of an image of what the British thought would serve their colonial purpose. So the problem really remains that in countries like Pakistan, specifically India as well, the, the British left, but the imagery still continues. That image, we continue to look ourselves in the image of the Western countries, specifically the British Empire. And we have may have decolonized ourselves in terms of the influence or the power, more so India, Pakistan has, still has not done in terms of the influence, but yet the, the colonization of mind still continues. Uh, we're still very much colonized in that way. We're, our practices, our institutions are still very much prone to developing policy from a perspective of the Raj, the British Raj. And I think that continues to be very much present in Pakistan. I'm not sure about India. I do think India has similar issues, but uh, in Pakistan, it is very much there. So the disconnect is there. The elite structures are there. The, the, disconnect, uh, the, the, the lack of data, which we never really revamped, which we never really did the service. So that is still there. Uh, the last, I think, is also another issue which uh, even if we put the other two things on the back foot uh, there is then a particular issue of because policy making process requires both the assessments etc etc the, the design and then i i do think there is also an issue of the implementation of the policy in pakistan because uh, we get a lot of great policies if you go to planning commission you'll have one of the best set of policies out there but the problem then comes that how do you implement those policies? So the implementation part comes with the political stability. Uh, Pakistan, unfortunately, hasn't had a lot of political stability. So every new incumbent government continues to throw away all the previous projects, all the policies and start from zero. So really, the country has been moving on from a year to year policy making process. Uh, so there hasn't been a national vision for 20 years. I mean, the Chinese are excellent in that. They make a 50-year plan, a 50-year vision, and they execute that. Uh, uh, India and the Congress party, Manmohan Singh also had a very good luck with that. They were able to develop a long-term plan when Manmohan Singh was the finance minister, which he continued till he was the prime minister. And I think uh, that reaped the benefits that India is enjoying right now, although I think it went into a very different direction from what was expected. Uh, but in Pakistan, there hasn't been a very long-term vision. So that vision didn't allow for the right implementation and every new government uh, with political instability became a problem. I was actually going to ask you if you follow the policy debates in India um, and what do you think of the kind of reforms that we are bringing in? India is a very diverse country and I, uh, I, I shudder to comment on India as a whole because I do think that by, by just merely saying India as a sort of monolithic group of policy or ideas, it's very colonial in nature. And I, I can test that. And which is one of the interesting things because I, I, I have a lot of friends in America and elsewhere who are South Asia experts. 
was like, how, how can you possibly be South Asia expert? South Asia is the most diverse region in the, in the entire world. I mean, in the US, there is English language and fine, they have some different accents if you move 500 kilometers north or south. I mean, India and Pakistan, you move from one village to the other, the language changes. India is a very diverse, Pakistan is equally diverse country. So, and then Bangladesh and all. So, so there is no such thing as South Asia expert and there is no such thing as India expert or Pakistan expert. There is very diverse region. So for me to comment, I could probably comment on North India at most, which I understand. South India, I have no clue. The politics is different. The, the issues are different. Even the gods are different in many ways. So, so it's, it's a very, very different culture. And I think that we should not fall trap. I'm sorry, the conversation is going in a different direction, but I, I want to say, uh, put it out uh, on the surface that we should not fall for the trappings of the Western colonial mindset of treating India as an, an entity you can be expert over. Just because you understand Delhi does not mean you understand uh, Kannada or something. So, so, so that one thing I wanted to lay out. Now, the, the, the surface level, let's talk about the, the, the government politics, the, the BJP and all. Uh, the, the conversation right now on the economic policy look, is, is, is the, there is no one conversation. That's the biggest problem. Um, while there is a predominant conversation, which is regarding the reforms and how things are going to move ahead with the global power competition rising between China and the US, being with this block or that block or the neutrality, while that is there, I, I do think there are competing voices on where they would want to take India. Now, again, I'm not an India expert. I look at India from a very national security lens. But the, the, the challenge for India, the way I feel, is for the last 70 years, India had a very ex India had an excellent foreign policy uh, posturing, which which basically was a balance between the US, um, the, the Russia, the China, and all. I do think in the BJP's time that balance kind of tilted a little bit. It got shaken a little bit, which was very un-Indian-like. India has never been that uh, been in one cap, but I think there was a sort of optics at the optics level at the projection level india was very much aligned towards a particular western cap which was very dangerous and then things happening with china were not really helpful either uh then there are other issues that we continue to see from india uh, the news right now and we did an analysis of this in the new york times we took up the last few years of new york times uh, sentiment analysis on india and they from 2008 to 2014 they were much more about economy the rising india the technology and all 2014 onwards and at the current government, it's, it's a lot about now beef violence, the 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 the, the attacks on Christians and the Muslims and all. So the narrative is kind of like becoming in a very different direction, which which for somebody from Pakistan, we've seen all of this happening to us in the 80s. So this is not new for us. And when we see what's happening in India right now on, on, on that level, uh, not the place where India should be going and not going to help at all we've seen it we faced it and it does not end well for anyone so so these are the two things that i can comment on on specific economic policies i i'm not the expert on the indian economy or what they're trying to do right now but i do think that uh that but the the the, the, the issues that are coming out of india at the moment uh are worrying and i i do think that the people of india should are much better positioned to judge what's going on 
You're listening to The Pathmakers, an interview series by The Black Sheep featuring people that make and shape a country. You have been very vocal on Twitter about the kind of reforms that Pakistan needs or the kind of the, the kind of direction that policy making needs to head in Pakistan and I find it very interesting that there was this tweet that you had put out where you said the four things that we need definitely is one change in the HR rules and policy uh, open the doors for lateral hiring uh, and bring in younger talented people under 10 years of experience on leadership roles so when you say things like this uh, clubbed with uh, digitization and clubbed with a more evidence based policy research do you not face a bureaucratic backlash uh, i'm very curious to know because the bureaucracy again is steeped in a very colonial mindset and they are sort of they prefer the status quo over any kind of radical change so when you talk about things like this uh, what is the kind of reaction you get i i was worked i've worked in the government for almost like 10 years now and i'm on very good terms with most of the bureaucrats and people in the system they understand my viewpoint uh, i i push these points all of what i say on twitter by the way i say it on their faces as well i uh, do understand i do think they understand it as well there is a recognition as well uh, yet the system is larger than any one bureaucrat or two bureaucrats or four bureaucrats so it's really the rules of the business in the system that needs to be changed and there is definitely an urge within the system so a lot of times people tend to see bureaucrats and then tend to think that oh these are the mother of all evils and these are the things that are continue to rot in the country i don't see it as that i do i in pakistan i've seen finest diplomats i've seen in pakistan finest bureaucrats when it comes to working they know how to they have 101 tricks up their sleeves to get a job done and yet there are over 100 tricks they have to not get the work done so i i i i i feel they're very competent people they're very very solid people yet yet uh it's not the personal fault it's the it's it's is the pace of how technology has changed in the last 10 years i went to college in 2005 and 6 there was no whatsapp back then i still had to use calling card to call back home from the us so from that 5 years later there was whatsapp later there was video chat and all of that so we've transformed very very quickly and the way we're transforming i mean i i got out of school around 12 years back the way technology and we were studying our programming language back then now there is python and then now even python is becoming redundant so my point to you is basically that the technology is changing very fast and while the technology is changing so fast it is making it is rendering irrelevant a lot of existing structures institutions and skill set so my personal issue with the bureaucrats in the system is that that the system is now not uh good enough it's not prepared to deal the challenges of a technology driven digitalized economy and a digitalized world so so either you go for a lateral hiring or you try to bring in positions or you try to bring in a younger lot through fellowships leaderships and other roles that can actually complement the traditional with the digital unless and until we don't do that we're going to continue to remain in 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 a century which which is unfortunately gone so and which which went away in a very quick time so a lot of people in the system they've not even recognized how irredundant and how irrelevant they've become so so my my purpose of my tweets is really to just tease them into thinking a little bit more they don't mind it personally <laughs> Before we move on to the next segment on radicalization and fake news, I want to quickly ask you: What is your vision of a perfect Pakistan? Where do you want to see Pakistan in the next 
ten years, twenty years. I that's very interesting question. I'm uh, I've given so many interviews, nobody asked me this before, but um, and I this is one thing I think a lot about because I do. I do have a vision for Pakistan. One, of course, uh, I do have a vision for the region as well, because I I do feel that we're integrated, we're interconnected. So you can't have a Pakistan under chaos, Pakistan under instability, while India is going to continue to rise. That's never going to happen. It's impossible. Uh, the similar thing with Afghanistan. You can't have Afghanistan under humanitarian crisis and suffering. while pakistan pakistan or india is going to grow it's not going to happen we'll be too integrated in our language in our ethnicity in our feelings in in a lot of our history as well so i i think that's an interconnection my vision for pakistan is very very simple i first and foremost it's less about the borders it's more about the people i don't think the the borders are basically imaginary boundaries which are good but they they for your comfort and security and safety but what is really about the country is people people make up the country so i have a vision for pakistanis and i want to see pakistanis and i do feel that this part of the region where we live india and pakistan and i talk both of them because essentially i have a lot of friends over the other side of the border and i know how they feel and i know uh, my people as well despite of the worst that we've gone through in the last 20 40 years despite of the economic collapses issues the radicalization the terrorism whatever label that has been put us put on us i do believe that pakistanis are one of the most charitable people i have seen poorest speak this country given the amount of charity that is unbelievable i have seen the the poorest of the poorest people in this country being hospitable to guests taking care of their parents taking care of the families taking care of the villages so i have a very strong belief that the people of this country pakistan are genuinely nice good faithful people so that's one very important point now what do i want to do what i want and what my vision for them is that i want pakistanis to be groomed and trained enough to be part of the larger debate and the reason i say is that because i was very fortunate to have a very globalized exposure i i lived in toronto for 2 years 4 years in the us 3 years in uk and then 4 years in australia and i've traveled a lot we are living in a in a society and a time in our universal history which is one of the most exciting times we have developed crispr the gene editing technologies we have sent missions to mars we are going we've sent hubble to even deeper in the space we have developed artificial intelligence technologies which we has shaken up the entire idea of where we come from and if we can create intelligence so we are part of the world where if you imagine 100 years back nobody could have even thought about all of this let alone flying aeroplanes nobody could have even thought about technologies that can send letters into seconds on the other part of the world so 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 we're living in a very very interesting and a beautiful world which is driven by technology which is driven by data which is driven by new ideas and anything is possible literally you can be anything in this world so what my vision for pakistan is that the people of pakistan are trained and groomed enough to become part of this larger debate on how do you send a human beyond how do you 
teleport goods how do you develop scientific inquiry how do you join the spiritualism with science and how do you become even better i mean because i think there are areas of science that are there but there are areas of science that are missing right now that are not been discovered the the science inside of us we've not even discovered 40% of our brain so so how do we basically go further into those debates that are globalized that are that are meaningful and that can progress the human civilization forward so i would like to see a pakistan where pakistanis are are the are the home for those new ideas they are the the spiritually enlightened people uh, people who have the courage courageous spiritually enlightened people and people who are part of the larger debate and i i do think so that's one vision for there but 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 the unified vision of this region i which i think is absolutely stunning uh india pakistan bangladesh and all the, the the diversity and the richness of culture and and the the the, the very fact that our regions are much more sophisticated when it comes to the metaphysics the the spiritual realms that this region has a very different sort of history uh i mean in islamabad where i'm sitting right now this used to be the seat of the buddhist empires the entire buddhism sprouted out of taxila which is 15 minutes from here so so we have a we sit on a land which is which has a very long history the indus river flows through this country the the, the ganga flows through india these are historic places and with the ancient wisdom that is there my my goal is how does this entire region come together for issues of of human importance the climate uh how do you make the best out of people how do you bring together people to solve the larger puzzles and if that is there uh i i, I do think that this vision uh, this entire region i mean forget about the us forget about china this region has has the people and the people are i believe the biggest uh, biggest thing that can actually work for the economy and for the advancement of the human civilization and i think that uh, both pakistan india these countries have a lot of lot of role to play if done right i have a follow up question to what you just said um do you think systemic changes influence individual human behavior or do you think it's the other way around so both uh it's not one happens first or second it's kind of like a cycle uh, one reinforces the other the other reinforces the other the question you really asking is uh, about the uh, the agency and structure uh, element whether the structure changes the individual or the individual has an agency uh, the answer to that is very simple the environment in which an individual plays that environment is very important yet the individual in itself is an environment that creates a field of energy and an environment around itself so it's there is no binary it's not i'm not separate from the environment or the structure from where i live so i am the structure and i'm also the agent in that so the the binary if you remove the binary you'll realize that you are environment and in the environment is you so both of them are interconnected and when the environment is conducive enough the the flower will grow in a right way and when the flower is growing it is also blossoming the entire environment around it so i think um, i don't see it as as two different things it's it's uh, binary less that is a very interesting way of uh, looking at it uh, i think we'll move to a next segment now uh, which is radicalization and fake news and your research around it so i was looking at your research on radicalization 
and I found it very fascinating, especially the part where you make a distinction between positive and negative radicalization. I think in the longest time I'd seen somebody come out and say that it's not radicalization per se is not bad, uh, but it, what it leads to is bad violent extremism. Uh, so would you like to talk a little bit about that and what, what your views are on the subject? Yeah, thank you. Uh, that that subject I worked on a couple of years back, 2015, 13, 14, 16, around that time. And I do remember the, the interview on ABC I gave specifically about radicalization. I, I think the terminologies are very important when we talk about these issues. Islamist radicalization after 9-11, Islamic terrorism, uh, they started coming up uh, as, as things to define things that actually never existed. There were Muslims who were terrorists. The Islam was not terrorism. Uh, similar way what is happening in Rohingya, there are certain Buddhist monks that are being violent. The Buddhism is not violent or Buddhism is not. So, so, so these terminologies are very important and it's very unfortunate how the media, the think tanks, the supposed academia continues to use terminologies on the other countries, specifically our region. They continue to paint, treat, and talk about our region in a way which is very demeaning, which is very reductionist. So it's like, like I said, saying that I'm an India expert, it's ridiculous. I mean, really, it's, it's one should be shameful to call himself an India expert, given the diversity, even a Pakistan expert. So the terminologies are very important. Now, why do I say terminologies are important? Because once we connotate certain things with an and associate with a particular impact, you kind of frame a discussion. And then from the discussion, because powerful discourses and powerful discussions create powerful realities. And when you create powerful discussions around particular terminologies, using terminologies, the reality starts shaping with that. I'll tell you what, uh, you start 9-11 happened. Nobody knew who those guys were, where they came from, et cetera, and all. And you started calling an entire religion as a terrorist producing religion. And then you started taking things out of context from Quran and started giving it as an evidence. And then you started associating terrorism with a bearded person uh, at a particular region and with a particular passport. Next thing you know, an entire nation for 20 years is being blamed for terrorism. Next thing you know, an entire community of people with the deep beards were being targeted uh, for being, I mean, I may remember in the New York, even the Sikh community people were being targeted as Muslims because they had a beard. So, so this type of the reductionist neo-colonial languages creates a lot of problem, which is one of the reasons when I talked about radicalization, I said this one thing that radicalization itself is neither good or bad. It is a feeling. It is being an activist. It is having the, the courage, the ability, the energy to do something much more. Now, you can use that radicalization in a positive way. And throughout our history, we have seen radicalized people ending the Vietnam War. Radicalized people that actually ended the Afghanistan War right now, whatever was going on, whether we like it or not, the fact was Afghanistan was a mess. And it will continue to be a mess unless there was some level of stability. So for a lot of people, Taliban may be this or that, but for a lot of people on ground, they brought stability, whether we, we agree with it or not. So in the same way, radicalization can be put for a very good use as well. 
in terms of bringing about a change in the system i personally think i am uh, if you ask anybody in the government i am probably a more radical person in the government because i have i have ideas which are more transformative in terms of the digital technologies and all i'm not a radical that i want to hold a gun and do stupid that's probably happened something in in the us <laughs> right now where there is a lot more radicalization in the southern us but but it's it's how you use that radicalization but if you're going to continue to use radicalization as a term pejorative term which we should be going um, uh, which we should be discouraging then you're basically stopping the the avenue of change because young kids with young blood they're much more eager to bring about a change and if you're going to continue to label their activism as a radicalism which the the western countries have done for a very long time uh, whenever there was an opposition to their wars the people who were doing the opposition were considered the radicalists the 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 godless communist and what type of words they use the anarchists and all of that so i do think that we should be very careful in using these terminologies specifically when it comes to communities uh religion ethnicities and all of that we shouldn't throw flying terms like oh the radicalized communities and all of that i find interesting is how radicalization in this instance also gets linked a lot with identities uh and it's sort of an offshoot of how you identify and the kind of associations that you create socially as well um moving on i'd definitely like to learn more about the g5 internet observatory from you uh why what prompted you to start it the kind of work it does and how it contributes to this entire narrative around fake news so g5 internet observatory is uh, born out of an innovative idea we wanted to because we realized that the traditional level of research is is good but the the way the internet has grown as a parallel universe uh there was no research on how the internet and social media is changing the human behavior and the social life so the online the i remember back few years back five years back or 10 years back people thought that oh something that happens online is remains online no that happened on the social media that's not the case anymore in the last two to three years we've noticed that the online world and the offline world are interconnected now so what happens in the offline world has an impact on the conversation on the online world and what happens on the online world on twitter facebook and all has a direct result on the communities i mean i remember how in pakistan and in india as well one fake news can create can create a havoc in the form of mobilization of mobs using circulating pictures and then going and doing vigilante behavior or whatever mob behavior that they're doing so so you've seen in india and i've seen in pakistan and we've seen in the us as well that the online and offline are very much interconnected the real problem was there was nobody studying this new parallel universe that we've created so the g5 internet observatory came out of that pressing need on how do we start doing research on this digital space where there are hundreds and millions of people saying lot of things on a daily basis and we wanted to see how they evolve over time how digital media how the usage of phone is basically shaping your identity shaping your behavior shaping your mentality shaping your human interactions and all of that so it came really out of that and then we started digging deeper into that we realized there were the this area required a new set of rules the new set of security mindset because anybody setting anywhere in the world could run artificial trends in any other country 
and make and using fake accounts, bot accounts, they could just create a reality of a country which doesn't exist. I remember in the uh, in last year we unearthed uh, a few accounts running from from our neighboring country India, uh, exploiting a particular sectarian issue in Pakistan, the Sunni and Shia. So there were accounts that were posing as Sunni, and there were accounts that were posing as Shia, and they were constantly cursing each other out. So five accounts here, five accounts there, being run from one of the cities in India. They were able to create a very big storm in Pakistan. So, and I'm sure from our side that has happened in on the other side of the border as well. But these are some dangerous issues that that are not without their consequences. So, how do you basically study these things? How do you look at those networks? How do you reduce that? So, our goal was really to monitor, do research, and then focus on how can we create a resilience in the people to be able to spot fake news or to be able to not act on fake news or not uh, spread fake news in the same way. So these are real challenges that we are facing in the, in the country, not just in Pakistan, but elsewhere around the world as well. There is a, there, is, there was an issue of the EU disinformation lab as well. I'm sure you came across that as well for 15 years. Uh, the Indian government was running a very malicious fake propaganda uh, it's, it's 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 happening all over the world and all over the country. So we need to create uh, new social contracts. We need to create new social uh, mechanisms and education to to stop people from becoming the consumers of fake news and the producers of fake news. Hussain, uh, as a concerned citizen, how do I spot or identify fake news? If I come across something, how do I determine? What are the do they have any certain characteristics that help me? Uh, spot a fake news item? I think the most important thing in determining a fake news is essentially the, the, the source of the fake news. So look at what accounts are sharing it. If those accounts are recently made, if those accounts have a very uh, obvious digital footprint, which is anonymous, so one should, that raises a, an alarm bell. But the recent concern that we've had is not only the fact that there are troll farms, bot armies running it. What if the genuine media houses are running fake news? What if the government ministers are running fake news? What is What if the parliamentarians are running fake news? So I think for individuals, the real issue becomes one, who is sharing it? Second, what is being shared? Third, is the data in that content, correct or not? Can you recheck the data or not? Fourth, is it being a targeted specific propaganda lady? If those two, three, four different indicators work, then you know that the source is compromised, the source is doubtful, then you know that the data, that the content being shared is, is violent in nature or is it uh, not violent in nature, whatever. The third is based on the data. If that data is flimsy, is it being sourced or not? And the last thing is basically to uh, look out what type of uh, target, uh, where is it targeted? So if it is targeted to a particular minority community, then you automatically know it's the, the likelihood of it being fake is rather high. If it's being sourced out of Arnab Goswami, then you probably know that it's uh, more likely to be not true. So, so it's it's really the people, the platforms, and all of that that uh, can I can easily identify. The thing is that, that the the extreme fake news are easy to easy to pick, which is around about 10-15 percent. The bigger problem is the gray area of fake news, where 
is really we don't have the definition constitute a disinformation a misinformation or an opinion so if somebody got i mean in pakistan we usually laugh at this one thing that anybody who runs into an accident anybody who gets picked up the first blame is on the isi and everybody starts saying that's the isi because i mean you can just say it and get away with it because not like they're going to respond to it so it's it and sometimes it's been very funny as well that uh, that there were some baloch kids or that 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 went missing and the entire twitter space and the activists and this and that started blaming isi tagging and this there was a whole movement uh, 15 hours later the kids returned and said that we were actually off for a vacation <laughs> we were in the mountains <laughs> so they came back and they clarified but the, but but for 15 hours a, a national institution was humiliated for somebody who went off of the grid so how do you basically balance these two things is 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 a is a big question and i think it requires a uh, it requires a strategy right at the very school level you need to you need to train kids at the school level uh, on the social media ethics on the safe usage of social media and how to avoid uh, becoming part of the fake news cycle which which is very obvious and i think the best prominent case of that was the afghanistan war um there there were a lot of indian channels that were actually sharing video games and all of that demonstrating that pakistan was flying f16s over afghanistan so a lot of these things are there and then uh, it just it's funny at the same time but it can be dangerous as well do you think fake news as a phenomenon is uh, geographically limited is it peculiar to the region to our region or um, does it happen in the west too but there are different ways in which it molds itself and you can't really identify it as fake news then the thing is that fake news is not new it's been present since the the dawn of news uh, news and fake news came together uh, it's it's the only difference over here right now are two things one the the new mediums the technologies have changed so much that it has allowed the producer of fake news to work at a very fast pace um i'll give you an example in the 90s when i was growing up till 1999 and 2000 there was only one state run broadcaster in pakistan ptv uh 9 pm news bulletin after that end of story there was nothing else uh the newspapers were limited so one few newspapers were into fake news publication but the their circulation was barely 5000 and 10000 uh then came the 2000s general musharraf said a liberalization and what happened was uh from one state run broadcaster to 150 private broadcasters so a lot of news people came and that became um, the, the the narrative from the state went to the private sector 2010 onwards right now we have over 140 million social media users individual broadcasters so in 10 15 years from one state run broadcaster to 150 private run broadcasters to 100 plus million individual broadcasters so the narrative of the state has moved the the state's monopoly on narrative has moved from itself to the private to the individual and when that happens the 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 vacuum creates state is not the only actor now creating the national narrative or a national story uh it's the individuals a kid 16 year old sitting in the bedroom and tweeting about how the army chief or the prime minister should run the country he has a voice i mean you can't do anything about it and you shouldn't but the very fact is that the the, the rules of the business have changed 
which is why it requires us to be more innovative in our approach in the governance. And that's what exactly I've been trying to do in terms of the reforms agenda, that you need to see the context of the society where we live and what are the triggers of that. And once you have understood that, then you started taking reforms to be able to then do governance in a digital age, which we are not doing at the moment. Um, I think I'd like to end with this question in terms of how do you counter fake news, specifically if it comes emanating from the state? Uh, and also, are there any model laws or are there any examples that help us counter fake news? I, I think too, it's very, very hard in a politicized, deeply politicized, deeply polarized environment to tackle fake news, even if it's emanating from the government. Uh, we look at the example of the US, there is so much deep polarization in the US right now. Uh, the vaccination drive, for instance, itself has been a subject of a lot of fake news. And, and despite of all the government efforts and all of that, yet the fake news remains. And it is so deeply embedded that the US government is not really un is unable to actually get over it. Uh, I think uh, fake news is a phenomenon that we've not really truly understood at the moment because of the technologies. Uh, we do know that all these news, fake news have a particular shelf life, uh, yet they leave an impact. Uh, they create a narrative. So it's not that we should just remain open to it. Uh, I do personally think that the only way, and I'm trying to do that over here, is one, don't fight fake news with fake news. Uh, that's 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 the no area. Two, the only way to fight fake news is what we try to do with G5IO. Fight fake news with data. So there is fake news, you bring in the data. Here is the data on that. One, uh, fight fake news with credible sources. So if there are uncredible sources that are sharing content, get the data and get it shared by the right avenues and the right platforms which have credibility. So that is very important. Academia, the universities, the legitimate journalists and all of that. Uh, and the last thing I think is very important that you need a renewed social digital contract. Uh, developing the lines and the boundaries. What should be and what should not be allowed because you see, it's, it's, it's a sort of thing. It's kind of like digital is kind of like a jungle right now where humans used to live without rules and everything. So anybody could just steal anything. Anybody just, just say anything. Anybody could just accuse anyone of anything and it would become a thing. The digital world, the digital jungle needs to be developed into a digital tribes. And then from digital tribes need to be developed into digitally organized societies where there is a code of ethic that red lines should be there. You're not going to be sharing, you, your content needs to be gender sensitive. Your content needs to be minority sensitive. Your content needs to follow these red lines. So far that has not happened, but sooner or later, what we're going to try to do in Pakistan is bring major people and major uh, players in the market, uh, the political parties, which are very problematic, the, 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 the social media advertisement companies, the, 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 the influencers on TikTok, Twitter, and all, we're going to bring them together, I hopefully in February, and we're going to have a conversation through a round table. We're going to come up with a social contract on following very big fat red lines. And I think that is the only way forward through dialogue. You can't put uh, cyber crime wings. You cannot have them arrested. You can't have that. That's a thing that will never stop. Uh, the more regulated you make it, the more uh, law enforcement issue you make it, the, uh, the worse it is going to get. So I think it's more of an issue of how you solve it through 
through outside of the legal, outside of this uh, framework, to bring people together through awareness campaigns and through social media budgets and all of that. And I think that's the only way. It's a long process, but that's the only way I think it can move forward. At least we're trying to do that. Yes, uh, we are nearing the end of our podcast now. I would love to know if you have any parting thoughts, um, any things that you hoped you would be asked questions around, but weren't. Um, so yeah, any any parting message or thoughts? Um, it's it's always a pleasure to talk to people from across the border as well. Talk to my own people who were here in terms of the podcast, and I think. Uh, as I earlier said about this one thing that we we live we're living through very exciting times where if we look in the retrospect 5,000 6,000 years of human history right now the modern history we've come very far and yet we're very still primitive in terms of technology in terms of our ideas in terms of our vision I mean frankly we're still fighting wars if that is not primitive what is primitive so I do think that despite the fact that we've come very far, uh, despite of our climate issues, this issue is that issues, I do have a lot of faith and I do have a, a very sheer optimism that by and large, the majority of the people in the world are good, one. And that goodness in the world will take us forward. The only way where we can really truly accomplish it is if we take a step above intellectually and spiritually to be able to really understand that we are all so deeply interconnected uh, beyond our nationality, the passports and all, we're really, really interconnected. And how as individuals, we can solve some of the most beautiful puzzles that the world has given to us, how we can cross the thresholds that a hundred years back or 10 years back, we thought was impossible. So I think together as a human civilization, uh, together as India and Pakistan, together as individuals, me and you, we can be part of the conversation that can really leapfrog the, the, the civilization from the age that we are in, uh, the age of possibilities to the age of actualization. And I think that's, uh, that's my, my larger vision. That's my parting word because I do think that the potential that, we are, that is there right now uh, and the way future is going to evolve in the next 15, 20, 30 years with the genome editing, uh, with the CRISPR technologies, with the space, deep space exploration, uh, we may look back and we realize that what the hell were we thinking back then? So I do think that all of us, specifically our part of the country, uh, region, I, I feel deeply connected to both India and Pakistan and both people from India and Pakistan. And I do feel that there is a need for us to solve the larger problems together as a unified force, as a unified intellectual and spiritual force. And I think if that we're able to accomplish that, we will, this region will become the, the intellectual hub or the, uh, the, the hub of change for, could be the hub of change for the, for the next uh, 40, 50 years.